Hello and welcome to Natural Health with CNM, the College of Naturopathic Medicine. I'm your host, Michelle Sanchez. In today's episode, I'm joined by naturopathic physician, Dr. Sarah Myhill. Dr. Myhill is going to be talking to us about long COVID. She'll be explaining what long COVID is, the symptoms to look out for, and why some people get it and others don't. Dr. Myhill will also be discussing the role of inflammation and gut health in relation to post-viral syndromes and what you can do naturopathically through nutrition and lifestyle for both prevention and recovery from long COVID. Dr. Sarah Myhill is a pioneering medical doctor and nutritionist and one of the world's leading physicians in the fight against chronic fatigue syndrome and ME. She qualified from medical school in 1981 and has worked in the NHS and in independent medical practice ever since. Dr. Myhill is a CNM patron and an expert in post-viral syndromes, including long COVID. She's also the author of numerous award-winning books. Hi, Sarah. Welcome. Thank you for joining us today. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. My pleasure. It's always nice working with CNM because you always ask the right questions. (laughs) Oh, that's good to hear. Now, you're a CNM patron and you've recently written and filmed the chronic fatigue and ME sections for CNM's nutrition lecture, which is amazing. Now, as the expert on post-viral syndromes, you're going to help our listeners better understand long COVID and give some advice on how to support the body should you get it. But before we get started, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your career in the industry? Well, I qualified in 1981 and, of course, thought I knew it all, as we all do. (laughs) Um, Went into NHS general practice and quickly found that I didn't know a fraction of what I needed to know to be a good GP. So um, I spent then 20 years in NHS general practice, you know, developing those skills, asking the question why, you know, what is the root cause of migraine, blood pressure, heart disease, cancer and so on. And after 20 years, you know, I knew I'd got some of the answers, or at least I knew I was asking the right questions. Mm -hmm. But at that point, I realized I didn't have the clinical freedoms within the NHS to be a good doctor. I wasn't allowed to prescribe nutritional supplements. My prescribing costs were so low that um, I got wrapped on the, uh, slapped on the wrist for that and told I was a bad doctor because I obviously wasn't prescribing enough drugs. Oh, wow. And there were various other issues. So in 2000, I decided to go into independent medical practice. And so I've been uh, working as an independent doctor since then. And my um, ideas and um, management plans have blossomed since because I have the clinical freedoms to do what I think is, is right. And that's putting my toe into lots of different waters, into you know, naturopathic medicine, into herbal medicine, um, um, uh, into ecological medicine. Uh, and so I now hope that I have got some of the answers to, to the questions and have at least got a roadmap um, uh, uh, so that people can use that to guide them to wellness. Absolutely. Yes, I think you've definitely, from from what I've heard from your work um, and seen you in some lectures, you've definitely got all the answers. So I'm uh, looking forward to hearing your thoughts today um, as we delve into to, to long COVID a little bit more. So can you tell us a bit, about, bit more about the work you do with post-viral syndromes? Because that's your area of expertise. Okay. Well, um, you know, long COVID is a post-viral syndrome. 
And we have two clinical pictures um, that are associated with fatigue. The first one is chronic fatigue syndrome. And chronic fatigue syndrome is characterized by poor energy delivery mechanisms. So people do not have the energy to function. You know, um, they can't hold down a job. They have to pace their activities very carefully. If they overdo things, they pay for that with delayed fatigue. And that delayed fatigue is pathological. So the difference between somebody with a chronic fatigue syndrome and somebody who, yeah, works hard and is tired at the end of the day is how they are the next day. Mm-hmm. If you are wiped out the next day as a result of your exertions, you have a pathological fatigue. If after a night's sleep you can bounce back and be full of energy the next day, then, you know, um, you are fine. So that's chronic fatigue syndrome. Now, there's this another condition called ME, and ME is chronic fatigue syndrome and inflammation. Mm-hmm. And inflammation produces a whole host of symptoms. I mean, the pathological definition of inflammation is pain, heat, swelling, redness, loss of function. But it's when the immune system is busy. And when the immune system is busy, it causes all those nasty inflammation systems uh, symptoms and it kicks a hole in the energy bucket. So it gives us chronic fatigue symptoms as well. So we then have to ask the question, well, what is driving that inflammation? Now, people with post-viral syndromes, they have ME, they have inflammation and they have poor energy delivery mechanisms. And if it's post-viral, it's quite likely that that inflammation is driven by that virus. It's quite likely that they've got a persistent, low-grade infection that the immune system is not dealing with efficiently. And it might not be dealing with it efficiently because it doesn't have the energy to do that or it doesn't have the raw materials to do that. Or maybe that person is not resting up properly and, and allowing the immune system to swing into action properly. Mm-hmm. So post-viral syndromes, clinically, they look like ME. And ME is a clinical picture, um, just as chronic fatigue syndrome is a clinical picture. It's not a diagnosis. And that's a very important distinction because a diagnosis implies that we know what the underlying mechanisms are. We know why they've got poor energy delivery mechanisms. We know why they've been inflamed. And the point about that is then, of course, that has obvious implications for management. Because if you've got Lyme disease, right, well, we need to tackle the Lyme disease. If you've got long COVID, well, you may have a persistent um, coronavirus infection, and that needs tackling. Many of my MEs are driven by Epstein-Barr virus chronic infections, and we have to tackle that with all the tools that we know to tackle that. So you very generously said I have all the answers. I don't have all the answers. I have all the questions. <laughs> um, but, you know, I do know some of the fundamental things that we all have to put in place um, to help energy delivery mechanisms and to help us fight infections. Um, so as I call it, I have the roadmap. I have the overall strategy. And then it's up to the individual to fashion their own treatment within those um, rules of the game. So uh, as I see it, my job is to give people rules of the game, the tools of the trade, the sort of things that we know work uh, uh, and are effective. And then they say they fashion their own recovery within those rules. Absolutely. And I think it's going to present differently for each person, isn't it? 
Uh, yeah, uh, exactly. Now, in its, an, an analogy I often draw is the cricket analogy. I'm a cricket fan. You know. The rules of the game of cricket are the same throughout the world. The tools of the trade are the same throughout the world, but everybody plays it differently. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the, 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 the style in which you bat, in which you bowl, in which you field is all unique to individual players. And that's why it's so important for individual patients to really understand their illness and understand what's going on because nobody is going to be better equipped, you know, to deal with their, and nobody's going to be better motivated than that person that's in the front line suffering those symptoms. And, and nobody's going to be better at monitoring their everyday today symptoms, their signs, asking a question, why have I got this? Why have I got that? And then that helps to guide um, their recovery. Okay. No, that's great. A great analogy to use. I think it always helps people to understand things a little bit better. Um, So with long COVID, obviously that's a little bit different to ME and chronic fatigue syndrome. So what is causing that and what are some of the signs and symptoms associated with long COVID? Well, the first point is, is long COVID clinically, the clinical picture of long COVID is identical to chronic fatigue syndrome and ME. It's characterized by low-grade chronic infection, almost certainly chronic presence of the um, coronavirus, together with poor energy delivery mechanisms. Now, when, I mean, we are all going to get acute COVID, everybody, the whole world. In fact, many of us have probably had it already. Now, some people will have had acute COVID and they will have died from that. And some people will have had acute COVID and they won't know they've had it. Mm -hmm. They will sail through it without any symptoms whatsoever. And the question we have to ask is, what's the difference? Why does somebody die with acute COVID? And why does somebody um, have no symptoms whatsoever? And the answer is, it's the immune system. And if you have got a cracking immune system, which is in great shape, it will see that COVID virus, it will recognise it early as an invader, it will mount a fabulous immune response, and it will get rid of it before you even know you've had it. Mm-hmm. And so. And actually, the treatment for long COVID for everybody should start now. We should all be working hard to put our immune systems in tip-top shape so that we get COVID and we don't know we've ever had it. And not only does that protect us from COVID-19, it will protect us from COVID-20, COVID-21, COVID-22. It'll uh, uh, protect us from the alpha, beta, gamma, epsilon, delta strains, the whole blooming lot. (laughs) Because, Because that is how coronaviruses have been affecting Um, mammal species for hundreds of millions of years. Um, As I describe it in my book, The Infection Game, life is an arms race. You know, you and I are a free lunch and all these microbes would love to make themselves at home in our extremely warm, moist, well-fed, comfortable bodies where they can have free sex, reproduce um, uh, and go on to produce more coronavirus. And by contrast, of course, we have developed amazing defences um, uh, uh, it, which is given the overall title of the immune system, but it's more than that. You know, stomach acid, for example. Stomach acid is a major defence against all infections. Why? Because 90% of infections come in through the mouth, either because we inhale them or because we, we, we eat them, we swallow them. Now, those that we inhale should get stuck in the sticky mucus of our noses, of our, of our respiratory tract, coughed up and swallowed. 
So those most those 90% of infections, say, that come into the mouth should end up in the stomach. Now, the stomach is an acid bath. It's an extremely acidic bath. And if those microbes drop into the stomach, they are instantly killed by acid, and that's the end of that. So either we get rid of that infection or we keep the loading dose so low that the immune system can deal with it easily. Now, here's a perfect example of where modern medicine has upset that defense. Because if we use drugs that stop acid secretion, and one of my least favorite drugs, the proton pump inhibitors, which block acid secretion very effectively, if we are using those drugs, we lay ourselves open to infection. You know, we, um, we drop one of our vital defenses and allow those microbes to get into our body in high numbers. And again, the loading dose is also a determinant of the severity of the disease. So when I say look after the immune system, it's not just looking after our immune system, which we will talk about. It's also looking after those physical barriers that protect us from infection, stomach acid, um, good quality mucus, good quality skin. You know, all these things help protect us from infection. Absolutely. so, so, and then we have to look after the immune system itself. And the immune system, so I'm talking about what happens when microbes, you know, get stuck onto the surface of, um, uh, of the respiratory tract um, or actually invade the body. And then the immune system swings into, into action with antibody responses, which might be surface antibody like IgA. It might be uh, antibodies within the blood system like ITG um, and um, um, it might be cell-mediated responses. So the actual cells of the immune system swing into life. But for those things to happen, we've got to supply the immune system with the energy and the raw materials to do that. Now, I'm going to jump ahead now. We have learned a huge amount from this coronavirus epidemic. We have learned so much about the important nutrients that help protect us um, against this wretched illness. And if they're going to protect us from acute COVID, they're also going to protect us from long COVID. And they're also the starting point to treat long COVID. In a nutshell, the first thing is sugars and refined carbohydrates. All infections love sugars and refined carbohydrates. They exude sugar onto our skin, they exude sugar into our lungs, they exude sugar into our guts, and those microbes happily live on sugar. One clinical example of this is people who are diabetic are especially prone to infections. Why? They're running a high blood sugar, they're exuding sugars onto their surface, and uh, and that encourages infection. So they present with skin infection, with urinary tract infections, with respiratory infections, uh, and so on. So. Uh, uh, So that tells us about sugar. So the starting point to improve your immune defences is cut out the junk in your diet, cut out the sugars, cut out the refined carbohydrates. In fact, generally speaking, eat a low carbohydrate diet. Now, that's difficult because it's addictive and we can talk about that a great deal. But the next thing we need to do is take vitamin D. Vitamin D is highly protective against all infections. Again, we've There are any number of studies that have clearly established that and and literally hundreds of them in the last 18 months, you know, two years since coronavirus has has existed. And the reason why we get flu epidemics uh, during the winter um, is not because it's cold. um, uh, It's because we don't get any vitamin D then because there's no sunshine. Mm -hmm. So we should all be taking a vitamin D supplement 
every single day. And again, if vitamin D was issued out free to in everybody in this country, that would stop the coronavirus epidemic within days. Vitamin D is highly important and the dose is critical. Now, the recommended government amounts of vitamin D is a laughable 400 IU. That is nothing. That's absolutely useless. The bare minimum is 5,000 international units, and I like my patients to take 10,000 international units. So vitamin D, very, very important. The next most important one is vitamin C. Again, vitamin C contact kills all microbes. It's a fabulous uh, uh, treatment for the body for lots of different reasons. It keeps the infectious load down. It's a vital antioxidant. It helps us to detox and so on and so forth. And again, the government recommended dose of vitamin C is laughably low. It's 30 milligrams. Now, that may stop you getting scurvy, but only just. I like people to take 5,000 milligrams. That's five grams of vitamin C daily. Um, uh, again, highly protective against all infections and lots, does lots of other jolly good things too. So that's number three. Oh, Sarah, just to, to on the vitamin C, are there any particular forms that you would recommend? Because there are different forms, aren't there? Well, um, the, you know, vitamin C exists in our body as ascorbic acid. And ascorbic acid is the cheapest and ascorbic acid is the best. And the way I like people to do it is put their daily dose of vitamin C in their water bottle so they have little and often dose of vitamin C through the day. And again, this is a, a huge help for stomach acid because we talked earlier about the importance of stomach acid protecting us from infection. If your stomach is constantly full of vitamin C, then again, every time you swallow something that may have infections there, or if you inhale something, uh, get stuck on sticky mucus, coughed up and swallowed, it's going to come in contact with a big dose of vitamin C and be instantly killed. So vitamin C, you know, vital. So little and often throughout the day is perfect. I know lots of people like to use liposomal vitamin C, but biochemically that has no great advantage over pure vitamin C and it's very expensive. And guess what? The people I'm seeing with fatigue syndromes, they can't work. And if you can't work, you're strapped for cash. So we have to do things that are affordable because mm -hmm. um, the unaffordable for most is not possible. So a low-carbohydrate diet is very not easy to do, but it's certainly affordable. Vitamin D is incredibly cheap. You know, that's why I could, you could happily hand it out free um, to everybody in this country and not be out of pocket. Vitamin C is pretty inexpensive. So you know, those three things are um, a great first-line treatment for your immune system. And then the fourth thing that is incredibly useful is iodine. Again, iodine is essential for normal immune function. Most people in this country are deficient in iodine. Iodine contact kills all microbes. But guess where the body concentrates iodine? The body concentrates iodine in mucous membranes. That makes perfect sense because that is where microbes first come in contact with the body, with mucous membranes, in the nose, in the airways, in the mouth, in the gut, and in the perineum. So if those mucous membranes are loaded with iodine, that's a great defense against infection. But in addition to that, uh, we can use iodine uh, inhaled, we can sniff iodine, um, and that will contact kill any microbe that's in the airways. And as one quick clinical example of this, I now have uh, five patients with bronchiectasis. Now, bronchiectasis is chronic lung infection. 
These people are never free from infection. And they go through life going from one antibiotic, then they're well for a bit, and then they have another antibiotic, and then they're okay for a bit. And on it goes until they get an MRSA, which is inevitable because they're on antibiotics all the time. And at that point, they're in deep trouble because they then have a chronic infection of the lung that is not susceptible to antibiotics. Now, all these patients have done the paleo-ketogenic diet low carbohydrate keto diet. They have they take vitamin C to bowel tolerance, so not just five grams, some of them seven, eight, ten grams. They all take vitamin D and they all sniff iodine. Now since doing that, the need for antibiotics has reduced to zero. They have kept their lungs in clean, tip top shape. And of course the lung the longer you keep those lungs clean and infection free the better able they are to heal and repair themselves. Uh, And so their lung function for many has actually improved. Funnily enough, when I was telling this story on one of my webinars or podcasts, I had a lovely lady who who got in touch with me after. And she told me that her great-great-uncle was a doctor working in South Africa during the um, Spanish flu epidemic of 1918-1920. Now, that was a proper pandemic. That really did kill a lot of people. It's estimated that killed 50 to 100 million people Mm -hmm. worldwide. The death rate was considered to be about 15% of those that got seriously infected with this virus. So that really was a nasty virus. Now, he treated his patients, and as she described, she said, he painted their throats with iodine. Now, I'm not quite sure how he would have done that because <laughs> the thought of painting somebody's throats with iodine you know, horrifies me, but certainly gargling with iodine would do just as well. His death rate was zero. Why? Because he was massively reducing the infectious load of virus and thereby allowing the immune system um, to fight the good fight. And in fact, there's been one study published in London by Stephen oh gosh, his name will come into my head, it's Will in a moment, who's demonstrated that gargling with iodine is highly effective at reducing infectious load and highly effective at reducing the severity of the illness with COVID. Stephen Chalakum is his name. So the point here is iodine is a fabulous tool. So those four tools. So if you want a shortcut, if you want a shortcut to how do I not get acute COVID? How do I um, protect myself from long COVID? How do I start treating long COVID? Those are the four tools, paleoketogenic diet, vitamin D, 10,000 IU daily, vitamin C, five grams daily, and use iodine regularly. Okay, fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. Can we just circle back to the iodine? So somebody's going to sniff it. What do they have to mix it with water? How do they do that? How much? Where do they get the iodine from? Okay, well, Is there specific types? Unfortunately, you can't, you can't see me in action but, um, because it's a talk, but I use a salt pipe to, as, a, as a method of delivery. Now, salt pipes have been used for, for decades to treat asthma, um, and it developed from an idea, a Polish doctor who noticed that the miners working in the salt mines in Poland have fantastic lung function. By contrast, those working in the coal mines, uh, their lungs were destroyed by pneumoconiosis. And he wondered if salt was in some way, you know, protective and helpful. So salt pipes were developed to treat asthma. And they're simply a plastic pot with some salt in it and and you sniff them. Now, if you add to that a couple of drops of Lugol's iodine, 15%, you sniff that. And the point about iodine is it's volatile. So if you put a couple of drops in the salt pipe, as you sniff it, you can smell it very obviously. 
And iodine kills at one part per million. It's fantastically effective. And if you can smell that iodine, you certainly got it at one part per million. And that is the therapeutic dose. And you know, a few sniffs in the morning and evening for prophylaxis. If you've got an acute infection, then you'd want to do that you know, um, every, every hour, every couple of hours to reduce the infectious load. Uh, so Lugol's iodine, 15%. Um, with a salt pipe, it's easily available. It's on my sales at Dr. My Hill. You can easily get it on Amazon. Salt pipe's very cheap, costs about £15. Lugol's iodine is fantastically cheap. I've got a pot of Lugol's on my desk um, that's lasted me for months. So it's cheap, simple, easy, and very quick and convenient to do. Okay, excellent. Now, if somebody wasn't doing the sniffing, they can gargle it, but can they also take a couple of drops in some water and take it internally? How? What would you recommend? Yes, that is uh, will be very helpful. Of course, that won't get the high concentrations or the higher concentrations you need in the nose and the airways to contact kill, but we're all iodine deficient. We should all be taking a couple of drops of Lugol's in a glass of water you know, daily, and that will ensure that your mucous membranes are saturated with iodine. And again, a huge amount of killing takes place at the mucous membranes, you know, in, say, the airways, um, uh, in the gut and in the perineum. And you need that iodine there for effective killing of virus. So, yes, a couple of drops daily in a glass of water. Great idea. If you if you have any hint that you may have been in contact with a nasty virus or you're getting the early symptoms, that would be the time to sniff iodine because that will then contact kill any virus that's in the airways effectively, safely, quickly, efficiently. And as I say, all viruses are susceptible to iodine. No microbe is resistant to iodine. It's a fabulous, safe antiseptic. Excellent. Thank you. Now, with the vitamin D, do you recommend that people take a blood test before they start taking large doses? I have done a lot of blood tests in a great many people. I have never found a normal level of vitamin D in somebody who is not taking supplements. So everybody, if you are not taking a supplement, I can almost guarantee you will be deficient. And it's easy to see why. How much, how much vitamin D did primitive man get? Well, primitive man was running naked under the African sunshine for 12 hours a day. Mm-hmm. He was getting a huge amount of sunshine exposure and therefore good levels of vitamin D. As humans migrated away from the equator, those with the dark skins couldn't make vitamin D fast enough and they died from vitamin D deficiency and only those with the light skins prevailed. So the further away from the equator, the, the, um, the, the paler the skins become and that is essential to give us vitamin D. But again, remember, you know, our ancestors lived the outdoor life. They were outdoors most of the time. And um, would even everyone yeah. had sun exposure. You know, we live indoors. I mean, okay, you know, I'm sitting in sunshine now, but I'm sitting in my conservatory. Sun coming through the window doesn't do it. The the the, the glass takes out the ultraviolet light. So I'm not kidding myself that I'm sitting getting a dose of vitamin D. And the fact of the matter is, is people living in these northern climes cannot get sufficient vitamin D from sunshine, and that that comes in from diet is so low that you can forget it. Mm -hmm. So we should all be taking vitamin D supplement. And if you have a coloured skin, um, if you're black or Asian, then you should be certainly taking it. And this, of course, explains why we see so many more black and Asian people succumbing to COVID than those with white skins, because their levels of vitamin D are so much lower. Uh, Very important for those guys to take extra vitamin D. 
Absolutely. And so those kind of doses, sort of 5,000, 10,000 IU, how long would they need to do that for? Is it an ongoing thing or just for winter? Well, my the, the fact of the matter is nobody has ever seen any side effects, any hypercalcemia, any problems whatsoever with doses up to 10,000 IU daily. Some physicians advocate 20,000 IU daily. Now, just to give you a rough idea of how, what that translates to, and if a white person sunbathed for an hour um, um, with no clothes on, they would make, a, you know, in decent sunshine, they would make about 10,000 IU of vitamin D. Black people need three to six times that length of time to get the same dose. So what we're talking about is an hour of sunshine. You know, what do primitive man get? 12 hours of sunshine, mm-hmm. you know, a lot more. So there's no way that 10,000 is going to cause any problems whatsoever. And guess what? It doesn't. Uh, when it comes to measuring levels in the blood, again, we have to look at the reference ranges because NHS reference ranges are so often based on what people walk into a hospital with and they assume that people walk into hospital are normal. And, uh, you know, two years ago, the reference range for vitamin D was 30 to 60, I think it's uh, nanograms per mil, which is far too low. Uh, that reference range has now been revised. So now up to, you know, um, uh, I think the, the lowest level is now about 50 to 100. But my lab's reference range is 75 to 250. Mm-hmm. So I like the levels of vitamin D certainly to be above 100 and ideally nearer 200. It's, um, and then you'll be hugely protected against COVID-19. Excellent. Thank you for explaining that. Now, can we just discuss the paleo-ketogenic diet for those listeners who aren't aware what that is? Could you just give us a brief overview and some examples of the types of things people would eat on that diet? Okay. Okay. When the first question people ask me is, well, why the paleo-ketogenic diet? And the answer is because that's what the human gut and the human metabolism has evolved to consume for hundreds of thousands of years. It's essentially, it's a low-carbohydrate low diet, and we fuel our body with fiber, and we fuel our body with fat. And that's what hunter-gatherers do. Now, yes, in the autumn, there would have been a window of time when we would have had a, a windfall. You know, we'd have had um, free fruit, free nuts, free seeds, um, uh, pulses, grains, root vegetables, and so on. And we would have switched on our carbohydrate addiction gene. We would have eaten a lot of those foods and we'd have got fat. And of course, that is survival value for the winter. And what makes us eat those foods is a carbohydrate addiction gene, a sugar addiction gene. And we eat those foods in an addictive way and therefore we get fat. Now, primitive man, those foods would simply run out. You know, they were no longer available. They'd have gone rotten and he'd have gone back to his um, surviving on uh, meat, fat, fat, you know, uh, fish, uh, and so on. And when we go back to meat, fat, uh, fat, and fish, that's running on fats. It's a very dense fuel. It's a very good fuel. But we would have been in ketosis. We'd have been fueling our body with fat and, to a certain extent, uh, with fiber. And that, as I say, is the evolutionary correct fuel. Sugar, as I say, invites infections. It's uh, we we had an autumn um, harvest because that allowed us to get fat, which is great survival value for the winter. But nowadays, with modern agriculture and food supply, we never switch off the carbohydrate addiction gene because those foods are available all year round. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're eating carbohydrates on the time, all the time. We're running a high blood sugar. And as, as aforementioned, that is a risk factor for infection. 
So we need to go back to our primitive winter, spring, summer diet, which is um, low carbohydrate, high fiber, high fat, normal amount of protein. People say it's a high meat diet. It's not a high meat diet. We, we all need a certain amount of protein every day to sustain us. And you can get that. Some of that protein can come from, well, much can come from eggs. Um, uh, some of you will get, you will get from um, um, uh, vegetables, but not much. So you do need to, so my view is you do need to eat some some meat. So people always ask me what I eat. Well, central to this is bread. Um, and in my cookbooks and my uh, other books, and uh, I have developed a recipe for what I call paleo bread. And this is a bread which looks like a, um, a brown bread. It looks like a small bun when you cook it, but it's made from linseed. And the important thing about linseed is it's only 2% carbohydrate, it's 25, 26% fiber. So it's great for the fiber. So it's a great fuel. So my normal breakfast would be um, linseed bread with paleo butter, I'll come on to that in a moment, um, with eggs, um, onions, um, what else have I got in the garden? Garlic, obviously, um, uh, and that would be my breakfast. And then I normally don't eat during the day because I don't get hungry. One of the joys of being keto adapted is your blood sugars are absolutely level. You never get hungry. Um, you can go through the day uh, perfectly well without eating. And then evening meal, well, yes, it will be uh, maybe tin fish. It will maybe um, um, meat. I'm very lucky I've got my own pigs. And then it's vegetables from the garden. And broadly speaking, it's the top vegetables you want. Root vegetables tend to be carby. You can have some. Um, berries are fine. Coconut milk is fine. So it's actually very varied diet um, and once you get into it it's very easy because you don't get hungry what gets in the way of course is addiction you know people looking for their treats they're looking for that sugar hit they're looking for that carbohydrate buzz uh, and the other point about this diet is it's paleo it doesn't have dairy products in it and the reason it doesn't have dairy in it is because again dairy products from an evolutionary perspective are meant for young mammals Young mammals, if they don't grow very quickly, they get eaten by predators. So all dairy products have growth promoters, and growth promotion is bad news if you want to avoid cancer. Uh, and there's no, no question that the epidemics of cancer we're seeing in this country at the moment are part driven by dairy products, which are growth promoting. But there are lots of other reasons why we shouldn't be eating dairy products. Um, there's far too much calcium in dairy products relative to magnesium. Our physiological requirements are one part calcium to one part magnesium. In dairy products, it's 10 parts calcium to one part magnesium. And since calcium and magnesium are absorbed by a similar mechanism, then having a lot of dairy products will induce a magnesium deficiency. And that is a major risk factor for osteoporosis. And we know that eating dairy products is also a major risk factor for osteoporosis because you, it renders you magnesium deficient. And guess what? Magnesium deficiency is also a risk factor for chronic fatigue syndrome and ME because magnesium is essential for energy delivery mechanisms. And guess what? It's also a major risk factor for um, heart dysrhythmias. In fact, a very, very common heart dysrhythmia, which is often dismissed by the cardiologist. Now, somebody comes along with an irregular pulse. Oh, yes, they say, you've got ventricular ectopics. You've got ventricular extra beats. Oh, that doesn't matter. Off you go. You know, you can ignore that. I don't think so. We have extra beats for a reason. And ventricular ectopics, almost invariably due to magnesium deficiency. Give those people some magnesium and guess what? 
You need vitamin D to absorb your magnesium. So I give them 300 milligrams of magnesium, 10,000 IU vitamin D, and I can almost guarantee that the ectopic beets will disappear. So, um, uh, so we shouldn't be eating dairy products. No, that's fantastic. So are there any other lifestyle factors that people need to consider? Well, major one is sleep. Most people do not get enough sleep. Um, um, you know, our physiological requirements, you know, are for at least seven and a half or eight hours sleep at night, more during the winter, less during the summer. And it's during sleep that the body heals and repairs itself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, let's ask nature what happened. What happened in nature? Well, during the winter, um, it was dark and they didn't have artificial light or televisions or anything. And they went to bed when it got cold and dark. In fact, I read a fascinating book about you know, the medieval peasant. Not that I want to be a medieval peasant again, I have to say. <laughs> I'd rather do it in other ways. But they went to bed when it got dark, you know, which might have been five o'clock or six o'clock in the evening. And they, slept, <laughs> they slept through until the small hours. And during the small hours, that's when storytelling would take place. They would wake and they would tell stories you know, in the dark. And then they'd drop off to sleep again and, and get up, you know, rise in the morning. And I don't run my, my life like that, obviously. But we have to respect the fact that we do need sleep. And our requirement for sleep has not changed. It is still the same as, as primitive man's. In fact, all mammal species... Well, I beg your pardon, all living species have a window of time where they have to shut down their biochemistry for the business of healing and repair. Now, if you are a a dolphin and you can't sleep, dolphins have evolved a technique where they shut down one half of their brain and that sleeps. And then when that's had enough sleep, it shuts down the other half of that brain. And while that sleeps, uh, um, swifts on the wing do a similar thing because, of course, they they never land. They are constantly flying. But we have all evolved mechanisms whereby we shut down our biochemistry to allow healing and repair to take place. And that occurs during sleep. And A, Western man does not get enough of it because he's playing with his um, Game Boy or he's watching television too late or he's um, you know, on social media or something. And that disrupts sleep. But the second reason is people living on sugars and carbohydrates do not get quality sleep. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is that if you are fueling your body with sugars and carbohydrates, so you're having, you know, fruit juice and cereals and toast and and marmalade for breakfast, and then you're having a snack mid-morning, and then you're having sandwiches at lunchtime, and then cake and biscuits in the afternoon and pasta in the evening. If you're running your life like that, every time you have some uh, carbohydrate to eat, you spike your blood sugar. Now, sugar running high in the blood is very, very damaging to arteries body can't permit that. So it pours out insulin. Insulin will bring the blood sugar down, but it brings it down very quickly. And as the blood sugar falls very quickly, the body panics. We're running out of fuel and it spikes adrenaline. And then the adrenaline stimulates hunger and makes you crave sweet things. And so you end up on what I call the blood sugar roller coaster, spiking adrenaline throughout the day. Now, if you're spiking adrenaline throughout the day, what does that do? It gives you high blood pressure. So Eating sugars and carbohydrates is the cause, or one of the major causes, of high blood pressure. But then what happens when we sleep? We're not snacking. We're not eating. Mm-hmm. But our blood sugar is still on that roller coaster. And in the night, adrenaline spikes. 
And what does that do? It wakes you up. A very good clue here is if people will come and see me and they say, oh, I have dreadful sleep. But if I go downstairs, if I have a cup of tea, if I have something to eat, I can get back off to sleep again. And that's because they have um, um, cured that adrenaline. Spike, if you like, that little bit of milk that's in the tea or the sugar that's in the tea or the biscuit they eat you, and they get back off to sleep again. But the fact is, if you are running on sugars and carbs, you are spiking adrenaline through the night. And that means you do not get quality sleep. You don't wake up in the morning feeling refreshed. At weekends, you have to sleep on um, till, you know, eight or nine o'clock in the morning to try to catch up on that sleep. And of course, lack of sleep, chronic insomnia is a major risk factor for chronic fatigue syndrome and ME. Mm -hmm. So by eating sugars and carbohydrates, we are setting ourselves up for you know, a potentially disastrous situation in the future. So you know, the, 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 the prevention and treatment of all disease you know, starts now and the cure is in the kitchen. Absolutely. You've got to stop fueling the fire. Correct. So what do you think about fruit because obviously that's going to have quite a lot of sugars because I know quite yep. a few people will you know if they're getting sick they're like they'll turn to fruit you know to, to boost their vitamin c so to speak well um uh, several points here um first of all the fruit growers themselves understand that humans are addicted to sugar and so they have developed varieties of fruit that are sweeter and sweeter and sweeter so when I was a kid you know the great treat for um Christmas um day breakfast was we were, we were given half a grapefruit. But I tell you what, it was so sharp, it was so bitter, and you could hardly eat it. You know? So you had to chomp <laughs> your way through it pretending you were liking it, but you, know, you didn't really like it. Nowadays, grapefruits are as sweet as anything. You can eat them like an orange. And you know, therein is the problem because the f- modern fruit is getting sweeter and sweeter. Um, we are told that fruit is, is good for us. Well, um, it not really, it isn't. Fruit juice is a disaster because that's just concentrated sugar. And the sugars in fruits are fructose, not glucose. And fructose is more pernicious, it's more damaging than the white stuff. And the reason for that is it inhibits the enzyme in the liver that allows us to correct blood sugar liver levels. We have a, a sort of um, a carbohydrate store in our liver and our muscles, which is called glycogen. To be able to free up sugar from glycogen needs an enzyme called glycogen phosphorylase. And fructose inhibits that. So by eating fructose, we can't correct our blood sugars when they drop. And therefore, we get even more adrenaline pouring out to make us go out and eat something, you know, or to get into fat burning to try to compensate for that. So fructose is more pernicious than the white stuff. It's the old story. A little bit is okay. A smidgen is fine. Uh, And we know sugar actually is essential for normal metabolism. Sugar is the raw material. Sugar is a six-carbon sugar. That has to be converted into a five-carbon sugar. And that is the raw material to make ATP, which is the energy molecule, to make RNA and to make DNA, which, of course, is the genetic code. And we also use a little bit of sugar for detoxing in the liver, and that's called the glucuronide pathway. So sugar is an essential. But we are swamped with the stuff. We have far too much of the stuff. In fact, we have so much of the stuff, the body tries to get rid of it by burning it off as a fuel. That is an abnormal state of affairs. So um, a little bit of sugar is fine. So the amount of sugar that is present in berries um, is probably okay. 
But again, bear in mind that strawberries have now been bred, so they are sweeter than ever before, and they are bigger than ever before. And it's very easy to get a sugar hit from a large bowl of strawberries, Mm -hmm. whereas for a primitive man, he'd have spent hours, you know, picking things are about the size of, you know, a raisin, um, uh, and and maybe end up with a little bowl at the end of the day. So he, you know, he wouldn't have had a much of a sugar hit from that. So tart berries like black currants, gooseberries, um, uh, white currants are fine, and I often use those in cooking for flavouring meats, for example. But a large bowl of berries, um, a large bowl of strawberries will spike your blood sugar. Now, of an incredibly useful way to make sure that you've arrived is to measure. You can't beat measuring because tests do not lie. And essentially, you need some sort of measure that tells you you're in ketosis. Now, there are three ways you can do this. You can do it, you can get urine sticks that you can pee onto, and they should go from pink to purple, and that tells you you're in ketosis, i.e. you are fueling your body with fiber and with fat. Um, You can uh, test your blood, but, you know, I don't like pricking my finger because I'm a wimp. Or you can do a breath test, and I tend to advocate breath tests because they're very quick, they're very efficient, they're very easy to use, and they're painless. And um, now there are a few caveats about using breath uh, ketone breath meters because you can get false positives and you can get false negatives, and I'm not going to go into that now. But it's a very quick and easy method of showing that you are in ketosis. You have done the diet well enough. Funnily enough, I was talking to a delightful young man yesterday who said, oh, he said, it's terrible. He said, you know, you know, I have to be eating less than 10 grams of carbs to get into ketosis. But he was eating huge amounts of meat, far too much meat, mm-hmm. more meat than his body could handle. Now, the body is very efficient. It, it doesn't waste anything. And if there's too much meat and too much protein on board, then it will convert that um, to sugar via gluconeogenesis in the liver. So this is not a high meat diet. We have to eat the right amount of meat. And, and I, in my books, I detail how you can calculate that. We have to eat the right amount of meat and we have to fuel our body with fat and with fiber. And that fat can be vegetable oils or it can be vegetable fats. So this diet, vegetarians can do. Um, and uh, they can get a very good source of protein from eggs, of course. I'm not so happy about vegans. Vegans really struggle to get the balance right. It is possible, but it's difficult. So don't get the idea this is a high meat diet. It's not a high meat diet. We have to have the right amount of protein in our diets. Okay. And and on the breath test, where would somebody get a breath test? Oh, good old Amazon. Um, oh, now, you can get them online. <laughs> yeah, you can get them online. A good old Amazon. Oh, I say good old Amazon. You know, I love them for some things. And I, I love them for their convenience and I hate them for other reasons. But uh, Amazon, they cost about £40. I say you have to use them with some respect. So, for example, if I've got somebody who's eating a high carbohydrate diet, they're having a lot of sugars and, uh, and refined starches, they will have an upper fermenting gut. If you've got an upper fermenting gut, it means you are fermenting those sugars to produce alcohol. And alcohol will give you a false positive reading on a ketone breath meter. So this is not something to take along to a party and say, let's see who's in ketosis and who isn't. Because if they've got a fermenting gut, they'll get a false positive. If they have had a sip of alcohol, that will give them a false positive. If you use an alcohol wipe, that will give you a false positive. Conversely, you know, if you have had, I found that with my ketone breath meter, if I have a sip of uh, um, coffee or something, that will give me a false negative. So you have to use these ketone breath meters with some degree of respect. You have to be sure that you're fairly near ketosis 
uh, to be absolutely sure that you've got a, um, a true reading. But with time, you get to, to, to know your breath meter, you get to know what you can and you can't get away with. But it's, it's a very helpful check. Now, guess what? I am no paragon of virtue. You know, this weekend, you know, I'm running a ride for my friends and we're going to ride halfway across Wales and back again. Oh, wow. And guess what? This wheels, this weekend, I will eat the wrong foods. You know, I will have a few cans of cider and make myself a bit silly with this and I will knock myself out of ketosis. But that doesn't matter. You know, did primitive man feast? Of course he did. He feasted in the autumn. He feasted in the autumn in order to get fat to survive the winter. So, you know, I'm a great fan of feasting. It's a lot of fun. And that's what life is all about. It's all about having a giggle and having a bit of fun and having a laugh. So I'm no paragon of virtue, but that doesn't matter. The problem with modern man is he's in constant feasting mode. He's drinking alcohol. He's consuming cheap, refined carbohydrates all the time. He's never not feasting. And Mm -hmm. that's why a primitive man and primitive woman gets into trouble. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Sarah, just before we finish up, can we just discuss gut health in relation to long COVID? Can you tell yeah. us a bit about that and how the gut... Indeed. Now, I'm quite sure people will be asking things like, goodness me, she's not talked about long COVID at all. But all this stuff that we've been talking about, I call this groundhog regimes. And I call them groundhog <laughs> regimes because I keep coming back to them over and over and over again. And the details of my regimes are free on my website. Anybody can help themselves to that. But the point is, this is the foundation stone. Because what people want when they, they clock onto a, 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 an interview about long COVID is they want to know, what can I take to get me well? Mm-hmm. Now, there is a magic ingredient, which I will tell you at the end, which is incredibly helpful. But we don't start off with that. We don't start off with the magic bullet because that will knock um, the coronavirus back instantly. But unless you've got this groundhog regime in place, the coronavirus will come straight back again. Because this is not a battle, it's a war. It's a war that has to be fought for life. So we start off with the groundhog regimes, you know, the um, the diet, the supplements, the sleep, the pacing, all that sort of stuff, and then we can add in the magic bullets. And as you rightly point out, gut health is absolutely central to this because there's no point eating food if we can't assimilate it, if we can't absorb it and, and make the most of it. Now, the single biggest gut problem that I talk about is the upper fermenting gut. Now, the the normal mammal gut, the upper gut, should be a sterile, acidic gut for dealing with meat and fat. And the lower bowel should be a vegetarian gut, which is full of friendly microbes for fermenting fiber. And those friendly microbes help to train and program the immune system. They help to ferment fiber to produce the fuel of short-chain fatty acids and ketones. And they do lots of other good things. They produce vitamin K, they produce serotonin, um, uh, they produce all all other sorts of uh, other B vitamins. You know, they're highly beneficial to our health. But modern diets, high in sugars and refined carbohydrates, we overwhelm the ability of our stomach to deal with that. And so our, our lovely, sterile, acidic, digesting stomach becomes a fermenting gut. And all those microbes which love to ferment sugar, and broadly speaking, these are the pathogenic microbes, things like yeast, fungi, streptococci, staphylococci, klebsiella, proteus, all those microbes happily ferment in the upper gut. And that causes all sorts of problems. Now, first of all, they ferment to produce toxins. 
things like alcohol, not just ethyl alcohol, but propyl alcohol, butyl alcohol, and many other alcohols. Uh, they ferment produce hydrogen sulfide, nasty toxic gas, delactate, nasty toxic sugar, ammoniacal compounds, you know, nasty toxic things that have to be dealt with with the liver. So it's a source of poisoning. So the upper fermenting gut poisons us. And in fact, a common symptom of the upper fermenting gut is foggy brain because it will poison the brain as well as the liver. And in addition to that, we've got those bacteria fermenting and all bacteria will produce bacterial endotoxin. And bacterial endotoxin is very nasty stuff. If you get a tetanus infection, it's not the tetanus that kills you, it's the tetanus um, endotoxin that kills you. Um, uh, if you've got fungi fermenting in your gut, then they will produce fungal mycotoxins. And we can measure those, but it's an expensive test. But things like ocrotoxin, mycophenolic acid, sturgeomycin, nasty toxins that, ha- that, that literally poisonous that have to be dealt with in the liver and some will spill over into the bloodstream. So it's a massive sort of source of toxic stress. And the other problem, and this is a fascinating bit of evolutionary biology, Mitochondria, which actually generate energy within our cells, every living cell in the whole of of the natural world is powered by mitochondria. From an evolutionary perspective, mitochondria derive from bacteria. Now, of course, they've been much changed over the, the millions of years, but what feeds mitochondria also feeds bacteria. So you can take expensive supplements that we know are essential for our mitochondria, like coenzyme Q10, like magnesium, like um, D-ribose, like carnitine, but they also feed bacteria. And if you've got an upper fermenting gut, then those microbes are just going to feed those bacteria. So they won't get to where they're really needed, i.e. in your body, and they will make the upper fermenting gut worse. So that is a major problem. And a third issue with the upper fermenting gut is they're bacteria in the gut. They are yeast in the gut. They don't just stay in the gut. Some of them will get into the bloodstream. And there they activate the immune system. And if those microbes get into the gut wall and activate the immune system, that drives inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's disease or like ulcerative colitis. If those bacteria get into the joints, they will drive inflammatory arthritis like rheumatoid arthritis, like psoriatic arthritis, like ankylosing spondylitis. In fact, that was known in the 1970s when I was at medical school and the treatment was a low-carbohydrate diet. So these bacteria drive inflammation and put us into a pro-inflammatory condition. And as we've mentioned before, in ME and long COVID, we are in an inflamed state and that will add to that inflammation load. Many, a common symptom that patients complain about is fibromyalgia. I have no doubt that much fibromyalgia is driven by allergy to microbes from the upper fermenting gut. And if we are overwhelming our immune system with all these bacteria and yeast, and guess what, viruses as well, you know, there are literally thousands of different viruses in the gut um, that the immune system has to deal with on a daily basis. In fact, about 15% of the gut microbiome is viral. If we then add to our infectious load with all these microbes from the abnormal upper fermenting gut, you know, we're driving inflammation all the time. Uh, and that drives dementia, it drives heart disease, it drives cancer. So in the short term, chronic fatigue syndrome, ME, long COVID, in the long term, dementia, heart disease and cancer. So the gut is responsible for so much pathology in the rest of the body. And the single most important thing we can do to improve our guts is what we eat. 
And that's mm-hmm. back to the paleo ketogenic diet. Absolutely. So if somebody has got an abnormal upper fermenting gut, they would be getting those kinds of symptoms like the foggy brain and the achiness and that kind of thing. They treat it. They treat it. And there's a two-pronged approach to treatment. First of all, you stop feeding little wretches uh, with sugars, refined carbohydrates and starches, i.e. you do a paleo-ketogenic diet to starve them out. Secondly, you kill with vitamin C and vitamin C to, to bowel tolerance. So you might start off with two or three or four or five grams, but you gradually build up the dose until you sterilize the upper gut. There are other ways to do that. Iodine is, inc- is extremely helpful. As I say, that contact kills all microbes. Uh, mastic gum, again, it's a good old herbal remedy uh, known to uh, cure some cases of helicobacter pylori. Chew that, and that, again, is incredibly helpful at cleaning up the upper gut. But the key thing is, Stop feeding it. Mm-hmm. As soon as you stop feeding it, there's nothing for the microbes to ferment and they go into hibernation and you massively reduce your infectious load. Okay, amazing. That's fantastic. And how about the sort of lower fermenting gut? We, yeah, we, no, we want to feed that. We want to look after that. You know, that, that lower bar, that, that, that our colons, our large bars, are full of kilograms of friendly bacteria and we keep them friendly by feeding them fibre. Mm-hmm. So this is a high fiber diet. So this is why the linseed bread is such a fabulous food because it looks like bread, it chews like bread, it doesn't quite taste like it, but it's jolly close. But it's 26% fiber. And with all that fiber, um, you are feeding those friendly microbes in the gut. That's protecting you from colon cancer. That's feeding you with um, refined uh, with um, uh, ketone bodies and short-chain fatty acids. And it's training the immune system and it's giving you vitamin K and all sorts of other goodies too. So PK diet is high fiber diet. So um, uh, um, um, uh, leeks, any top vegetables in the garden. At the moment, I've got leeks in the garden. I've got cabbage. I've got the last of the French beans, um, uh, onions, um, squashes coming through. So, you know, all those foods are feeding the friendly fibre, are feeding the friendly microbes in the, in the lower bowel. Amazing. Diet is key, as we know. So are there any other recommendations you have just before we finish up? Okay, this is the big one for long COVID. Oh, the big one. <laughs> I'm waiting for it. And this is what everybody will do first because they think that, that will get rid of it. But as I say, without everything else in place, uh, no. There is one medicine which is uh, of proven efficacy against acute COVID and long COVID, and that's ivermectin. Now, this, yes, it's a, a drug. Yes, it's a prescription drug. Uh, it's been widely used for decades. You know, in India, where you can buy over-the-counter, um, those states uh, where they've continued to supply ivermectin and advise people how to take it to treat their acute COVID, there has been no uh, pandemic. There have been no COVID deaths. Uh, uh, and in those states where it's been banned, they've had they've seen the same picture that we have that we are seeing in this country. But it's a cheap drug; it's highly effective. There is an, a wonderful website set up by Dr. Tess Lowry, who's done so much research and established so much information showing that ivermectin is highly effective in short COVID. It's highly effective in long COVID. Uh, she's worked out the doses and the regimes, and there it's free for everybody to access. So if you Google BIRD, British Ivermectin Resource Development, you will see the doses of of Ivermectin that you need, how you can get the stuff. And she also has doctors there who are helping advise people how to use it in the treatment of acute and long COVID. But I can't emphasize enough, 
get the groundhog regimes in place first. Because when, if you don't, when the ivermectin runs out, you're just going to be back at square one again. So what the ivermectin does is it reduces the loading dose of virus to a point at which the immune system can deal with it. And then you have to put your immune system in tip-top shape so it can not only deal with it, but it can stay ahead of the game for life. As I said, this is not a battle. This is a war. This is a war that has to be fought lifelong. Now, it's a war we know we're all going to lose. But if I lose that war when I'm 100, I'll settle for that. But I don't want to lose the war now when I'm only in my 60s and I'm still enjoying life and got lots of energy and want to get out on my horse and do things. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And it's the same for any disease. You know, you have to, the diet and lifestyle is key. You know, you have to, it's your body's terrain. It has to be in tip-top condition because otherwise, you know, Correct. other things are going to happen. You know, you you get stressed or some something happens and if your body's not well equipped um, to deal with Correct. your defences are not up, then you're going you're gonna to struggle big time. Yep, I've written a whole book about this. It's called Ecological Medicine. It's about the whole of medicine. It's currently extremely cheap, available on my website. So you want to get it, get it now. Um, um, I've brought the price down to, to cost essentially, so I'm not making any money at it, I can tell you. But it goes through the whole of medicine, from the symptoms and the mechanisms and the tools of trade that we've discussed now, through to the ologies. And very often people go to the cardiology chapter, the neurology chapter, um, uh, the paediatric chapter, the, the gynecological chapter, because they've got a particular problem. They can see what the priorities are, and then they can go backwards through the book. And then it's illustrated with lots of case histories. So every ology has at least two or three case histories to illustrate the power of these tools to reverse pathology and restore normal, rude, good health. It's called healing. It's called naturopathic medicine. And that's why we should all be doing it. Absolutely. And we'll pop a link uh, in the show notes to that book. And what was your cookbook called, Sarah? Uh, it's called the PK Cookbook, the Paleo Ketogenic Cookbook. And that gives you good reasons why we should be doing the diet, but most importantly, the how. The delicious recipes, the things that we can substitute for the dairy products, the paleo ketogenic bread, what to eat for breakfast, how to do main courses, you know, what puddings we can have, you know. Um, so it means that, you know, we can eat well. And guess what? I do eat very well. Why? Because I'm greedy and I love my grub. But I also <laughs> love being well. Absolutely. And I think that's the, that's the thing. People do struggle because when you say, oh, we don't eat this, they need those subs, especially dairy. That's such a big food group for many people that they struggle because everyone's brought up, you know, you need to eat lots of dairy. Kids need to have dairy. And when you say to parents or to people to take that out, they, they do struggle with that. So having mm. those substitutes is really key. Yeah. And again, uh, I've written another book, just finished, uh, which is due out in the new year, called Green Mother. And it's how we apply these principles of ecological medicine to uh, preconception, pregnancy, childbirth, child rearing, you know, uh, di-da-di-da-di-da. It's the practical reality of how to breed and produce healthy kids and sustain their health throughout life. Amazing. I'll definitely be getting a copy of that. That sounds fantastic. No, thank you for sharing that. And thanks for coming on today and sharing all your wisdom with us. It's been amazing. And I know that our listeners are going to find your advice incredibly useful. So thank you. My pleasure. So where can people find more information about you and the work you do, Sarah? Well, um, just Google Dr. Myhill and the the website comes up. I looked the other day, it's had 21 million hits. So it's a well-used website. And on that, um, there are links to the books that I've written, 
I also do workshops, which are very popular, where you can buy a ticket for a workshop and I talk all day from half past nine in the morning till four o'clock in the afternoon about all these basic regimes and everybody's welcome. We have patients with fatigue syndromes, with cancer, with dementias, and it doesn't matter what the pathology is, the basic workup is the same. And the deal in those workshops is anybody can ask any question at any time. And that makes it much more fun and interesting because we all stay awake, including me. And as you probably <laughs> gather from this, I'm gobby. I'm good at talking. I like talking. <laughs> so <laughs> they run on all day. And they have actually proved very popular. I max them out at 20 so that it's not too big a group, so everybody gets a chance to have their say. And people send in their test results and say, what does this mean? What does that mean? And I try and make it make sense in the context you know, of the whole workshop. So they're usually very jolly days. They go very quickly. And I get some very lovely, happy feedback from people who attend. Oh, that sounds fantastic. And I'm sure you're still buzzing afterwards. Anyone else would be really tired after hours and hours of talking. <laughs> Not you. <laughs> I crack lots of jokes and the jokes keep me awake. Oh, I love that. But no, we can, you know, just feel your energy and your passion for it, which is fantastic. And we need more doctors like you or naturopathic physicians, you know, that can share this knowledge for people. And that's why we do this podcast and all the work that CNM does as well. And I know you're doing a lot of work behind the scenes with CNM in terms of talk and you know working on on some of the lecture notes and stuff so that's amazing absolutely it's a great organization cnm have really organized themselves well and their educational arm is second to none it's fantastic well that's all we've got time for today thanks for listening and a big thank you to dr myhill for sharing her wealth of knowledge with us you can find all the information discussed today and more about dr myhill in the show notes on the cnm podcast website at www.cnmpodcast.com and if you're interested in learning more about nutrition herbal medicine or naturopathy check out cnm's range of short courses and diplomas and we have a series of open events coming up and you can find all the details on cnm's website at www.naturopathy-uk.com thanks so much for joining us today if you enjoyed the show make sure you subscribe through your favorite podcatcher so you don't miss any future episodes while you're there, we'd love it if you could leave us a rating or review as this helps us when creating new content.